You are listening to a Monash Christian Union Bible Talk. We encourage you to share this with friends and family, but ask that you do not edit it without the permission of the owners. This Bible Talk is designed to supplement belonging to a local church with its teaching and community, not to replace it. We pray this talk helps you love Jesus and become more like him. Genesis chapter 37 from verses 2 to verse 36. This is the account of Jacob's family line. Joseph, a young man of 17, was tending the flocks with his brothers, the sons of Bilal and the sons of Zilpah, his father's wives. And he brought their father a bad report about them. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any of his other sons because he had been born to him in his old age, and he made him an ornate robe for him. When his brothers saw that their father loved him more than any of them, they hated him and could not speak a kind word to him. Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him all the more. He said to them, Listen to this dream I had. We were binding sheaves of grain out in the field, when suddenly my sheaf rose, and stood upright, while your sheaves gathered around mine and bowed down to it. His brothers said to him, Do you intend to reign over us? Will you actually rule us? And they hated him all the more because of his dream and what he had said. Then he had another dream, and he told it to his brothers. Listen, he said, I had another dream, and this time the sun and the moon and eleven stars were bowing down to me. When he told his father as well as his brothers, his father rebuked him and said, What is this dream you had? Will your mother and I and your brothers actually come and bow down to the ground before you? His brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the matter in his mind. Now his brothers had gone to graze their father's flocks near Shechem. And Israel said to Joseph, As you know, your brothers are grazing the flocks near Shechem. Come, I'm going to send you to them. Very well, he replied. So he said to him, Go and see if all is well with your brothers and with the flocks, and bring word back to me. Then he sent him off from the valley of Hebron. When Joseph arrived at Shechem, a man found him wandering around in the fields and asked him, What are you looking for? He replied, I'm looking for my brothers. Can you tell me where they are grazing their flocks? They have moved on from here, the man answered. I heard them say, let's go to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them near Dothan. But they saw him in the distance, and before he reached them, they plotted to kill him. Here comes that dreamer, they said to each other. Come now, let's kill him and throw him into one of these cisterns and say that a ferocious animal devoured him. Then we'll see what comes of his dreams. When Reuben heard this, he tried to rescue him from their hands. Let's not take his life, he said. Don't shed any blood. Throw him into this cistern, here in the wilderness, but don't lay a hand on him. Reuben said this to rescue him from them and take him back to his father. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the ornate robe he was wearing, And they took him and threw him into the cistern. The cistern was empty. There was no water in it. As they sat down to eat their meal, 
they looked up and saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead. Their camels were loaded with spices, balm, and myrrh, and they were on their way to take them down to Egypt. Judah said to his brothers, What will we gain if we kill our brother and cover up his blood? Come, let's sell him to the Ishmaelites and not lay our hands on him. After all, he is our brother, our own flesh and blood. His brothers agreed. So when, the Midianites, so when the Midianite merchants came by, his brothers pulled Joseph up out of the cistern and sold him for 20 shekels of silver to the Ishmaelites, who took him to Egypt. When Reuben returned to the cistern and saw that Joseph was not there, he tore his clothes. He went back to his brothers and said, The boy isn't there. Where can I turn now? Then they got Joseph's robe, slaughtered a goat, and dipped the robe in the blood. They took the ornate robe back to their father and said, We found this. Examine it to see whether it is your son's robe. He recognized it and said, It is my son's robe. Some ferocious animal has devoured him. Joseph has surely been torn to pieces. Then Jacob tore his clothes, put on sackcloth, and mourned for his son many days. All his sons and daughters came to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted. No, he said, I will continue to mourn until I join my son in the grave. So his father wept for him. Meanwhile, the Midianites sold Joseph in Egypt to Potiphar, one of Pharaoh's officials, the captain of the guard. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. He speaks and out of his mouth, Literal galaxies are formed, each with billions of stars, trillions of planets. And that God that speaks and creates sees fit. He sees fit to, on one of these planets, create two people, Adam and Eve. And, and in his mercy and his love breeds life into them, making them in his image and says, over all this, the seas, the trees, the bees, everything that exists, rule over it. He blesses them. That God that pulls out of nothing and creates things, blesses them. He says to them, there's just one rule, just, just one thing that I don't want you to do. See that tree here in the middle of the garden? Don't eat from it. Don't eat from it. Along comes forth an enemy, a snake, who convinces these two people, Adam and Eve, to turn and not listen to God's word. That God that God that made everything, his word. And Adam and Eve, they look at that tree and they say to God's word, no, not for me. They take it and they eat from it. What, what should happen to them? What would you do? 
I reckon that God should have taken them and flung them into some faraway nebula in some strange quadrant of the galaxy to contemplate for the rest of their lives the sheer insanity of that decision. They didn't listen to that God? How wicked, how arrogant, how foolish. But what does God do? Well, we read in Genesis 3 that he decides to place a curse on them. He has mercy. He doesn't kill them straight away as they deserve. He puts a curse on them and on the land. And now death, decay and disease reign over that creation. And you feel it, don't you? You feel it in your bones. All of us here. Life is meaningless, frustrating, painful. But in amongst this curse is a sliver, a tiny sliver of hope. Because God says to Adam and Eve, I will curse you, but from you will come a seed, an offspring, a child who will crush the head of that great enemy, the snake. And in it, we see what we may call the first echoes, the first shreds of what we call the gospel, the good news. It's in a very rudimentary, prototypical form. But God is promising his people that there will be some sort of restoration, that the great enemy will be defeated. And so... Well, Adam and Eve have messed up. So we look to their children. Are they going to be the seed? What happens? Well, Adam and Eve, they have two sons, Cain and Abel. Both made in God's image. And one day, Cain, jealous of Abel, looks at him, looks him in the eye. His own flesh and blood made in the image of God. And he says, I don't think your life is worth living. We don't know what happens, but he, what, what does he do? Maybe take a rock or a spear or a plow and he decides to drive it into his brother, spilling his blood on the ground. Abel's not the seed to come, he's dead. And Cain cannot be either, he's a murderer. Who will be the snake-crushing seed? And to that, God gives us some clues. Who, who is that seed going to be? We see in Genesis 3 that the seed, the promised child, is going to crush the snake, the enemy. In Genesis 15, that that seed will be one amongst a great nation. And in Genesis 17, that that seed will be a king of nations, a royal seed. And God, if you, it's uncomfortable to think this way, but God binds himself to this promise. He says, I will see it through. This will happen. I will make it happen in what he calls a covenant, sort of like a deal or a treaty with his people. And so we look through the book of Genesis. Who is the seed? And that's how the book of Genesis is structured. In 10 generations... Like if you've got an NIV, it will say this is the account of the family line. You may have ESV saying this is the generations. These are the seed bearers that we're looking for to see. Where is the seed? And there are 10. Well, we looked at the heavens and the earth. They produce Adam and Eve. How did that go? Not well. Is Adam going to produce the seed? No. 
Abel's super dead and Cain is a murderer. It just gets worse and worse and worse. And we end now, finally at the end of Genesis, with Jacob. And I think the author has structured Genesis in this way. These are the family accounts. These are the generations. These are the ones who produce children. Why? Because we're asking this question, is this man here going to produce the king? Is he the kingmaker? Will he produce the seed that will come and crush the snake? And that's where we are going to go with this series. Is Joseph the royal snake-crushing seed? I think that's what the whole narrative of Genesis 37 to 50 is about. Trying to answer that question. Is he the one? The one we've been looking for? And we're going to be reading about Genesis 37, the start of the story, where Joseph has some dreams. So come with me as we read together, starting from verse 2, Joseph's dreams. This is the account of Jacob's family line. Joseph, a young man of 17, was tending the flocks with his brothers, the sons of Bilhah and the sons of Zilpah, his father's wives, and he brought their father a bad report about them. Joseph is one of Jacob's sons. But who are these other people? Well, this is my son, Asher. He's very cute. He's a bit of a happy goose. His name means blessed or happy. And he's named after Asher, one of the sons of Jacob, one of the sons of Zilpah. Zilpah is one of Jacob's four wives. Now, this picture here are going to be the characters for our story going forward. We have Leah and Rachel, sisters, each who have a maidservant, Zilpah and Bilhah, and they have 12 sons. And we're thinking about, we're focusing on number 11, that's Joseph. Who is Jacob? Who is Jacob? Well, Jacob, as you know, is the grandson of Abraham, the great patriarch of the Israeli people, and Isaac was his father. This is the family of Israel. Now, Joseph is out and he brings a bad report to his father. And as you know, the saying goes, snitches get stitches. Or I guess in the ancient Near East, snitches get thrown in a well, left for dead and sold to the Ishmaelites. He brings a bad report to his father. But his father, I'm going to get off that slide, his father accepts that report. Do you see what happens? In verse 3, now Israel, that's another name for Jacob. Israel loved Joseph more than any of his other sons because he had born to him, been born to him in his old age and he made an ornate road for him. Could you imagine what it would have been like to be one of the other children? Jacob has blessed Joseph with a fancy robe. He's walking around the camp and every day you know that he's the favorite. And what, why is this the case? Well, well, Jacob himself was a favorite. He was a twin. His brother's Esau. He didn't even make the slide, <laughs> Esau. And his father Isaac loved him dearly. In fact, even God loved Jacob more than Esau. Now, there's much to be said about the type of dysfunction that can cause in a family. And we see it's elevated here by this making of a robe. What happens? Do you see? Do you see? Read with me. What happens to Joseph, in verse 4, his brothers saw that their father loved him more than any of them, and they hated him. They couldn't even speak a word to him. 
it gets worse. It gets worse because now Joseph has two dreams. The first dream we read is that Joseph says to them, we were binding, reading verse seven, verse seven, we were binding sheaves of grain out in the field when suddenly my sheaf rose and stood upright while your sheaves gathered around mine and bowed down to it. Joseph's brothers kind of read between the lines. They see that there's text and subtext. I had this awesome dream, guys. What, what he's kind of saying is, I'm better than you. Treat me well, you peasants. One day I'm going to be the king. I am the chosen one who's going to receive the blessing. And his brothers hate him all the more. They hate him all the more. He is the tall grain who they have to bow to. And they say to him in verse 8, Do you intend to reign over us? Will you actually rule us? They hate him all the more. You know, as you may notice, I'm a South Asian guy. <laughs> I'm a Sri Lankan Australian. When I relate to my parents, I have a very specific way. Like, let me give you an example. Um, when I was in high school, there was a thing called a social, which is just kind of a super lame, like, I guess, club or rave for high school students. Like, I'm not knocking on clubbing. I'm just knocking on high school clubbing, supervised by your teachers at your school. Super lame. But it's how you get social clout, right? So I try to convince my parents, can I please go to this thing? And I don't know if there are any other South Asians in the room who might resonate or, or any other culture. What I would do, of course, I'm not going to ask a day before. That's silly. I have six months in advance. Just put it on the table. Hey, mom, can I please go to the social? What? <laughs> Backpedal out. <laughs> Raise it again three weeks later. Now, why do I do that? Well, oh, I, I have a, I think, I, I genuinely think a healthy deference for my parents. It's how I relate to them. Joseph clearly doesn't have that. <laughs> What does he do next? He goes and he says to his father, his brothers, listen, I had another dream and this time the sun and the moon and the 11 stars were bowing down to me. There's not even subtext here. He's saying it's me. I'm the guy. I'm not, it's not even like a special star. I'm the one. And his father and his brothers, well, they get the not-so-subtle subtext and they hate him. However, Jacob, his father, do you see in verse 11? Read with me. His father kept the matter in mind. He's, he, he ponders on it. He questions it. And now, if you've been following along with the reading, thank you, Kudzo, for reading that out, and you've been following with, with me now, have you noticed something? Scan the text. How many times does the word God appear in this chapter? I'll jump ahead for you. It's zero. We don't know. Are these dreams given by God? Or was Joseph, Joseph just some crazy guy? And the author doesn't tell us. It heightens attention, doesn't it? Is Joseph just like a bratty, insufferable megalomaniac of, the, of like the highest order? The worst sibling of all time. Or is he truly a God-empowered ruler? Is he? Well, the narrative is going to help us answer that, but not quickly. And what we see is that Joseph's dreams are dashed. Joseph's dreams are dashed. Because the question that the brothers ask in verse 8, will you actually rule us? 
Will you actually rule us? Takes a very dark and murderous turn. Joseph goes out to find his brothers and read with me in verse 19 what they intend to do to him. Joseph goes on a big escapade looking for his brothers. And in verse 19 we read, they say, here comes that dreamer. They said to each other, come now, let's kill him. Let's kill him and throw him into one of these cisterns, that's a well or a pit, and say that a ferocious animal devoured him. Then we'll see what comes of his dreams. Ah, there's the shining star, the tall grain. Let's see how his dreams work out when he's super dead. And enter into the story, probably the most ineffective big brother of all time, Reuben. Reuben, he's the firstborn. He tries to negotiate with his younger brothers and he manages to get murder off the table, but not throwing him into a pit. And so they do. Reuben, the big chump, he doesn't prevent it. And the brothers, they look Joseph in the eye, their own flesh and blood, made in the image of God, a son of the covenant, a son of blessing. And they grab hold of him, they look him in the eye, and they throw him into a cistern, into a pit, into a well. And do you see, the text makes it really clear in verse 24. The cistern, read with me, the cistern was empty. There was no water in it. Not a drop of water. Not a lick of water. Not a shred of water. Could you imagine how much that would have hurt? They drop him deep down into a pit. When I um, was a student on campus, one of my best friends and I used to go skateboarding around campus, just not during semester, but off semester, just for fun. We used to go skateboarding out near the Aboriginal garden, near the hockey fields. And my friend Callum, he and I were skateboarding and he went down a hill and he fell from about, I don't know, half body height, admittedly with a bit of an acceleration, put his hand out, shattered his arm, shattered his arm. I rushed him to the ED, they put a blood pressure cuff on him so tight that he had no blood flow so they could shoot a local anesthetic into his arm and they literally rip it back in place, his shattered arm. But he doesn't feel a thing. The medication worked. Joseph's brothers throw him into a pit without water. Bloodied, battered and bruised, he's probably screaming at the bottom of this pit. And what do they do? Verse 25, they sat down to eat their meal. Such was their hatred for the guy. He's screaming, get me out. I'm in pain, who knows? And they sit down and they eat a meal. And then enter into the story, Judah. Judah, the fourth born son, has a bright idea. Look what he says. He says, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites. And get this, all right? Right, he's going to say something else, but just remain this part of the story so far. They hate the guy so much that they've grabbed him, thrown him in a well, left him for dead. He says, let us not lay our hands on him. <laughs> After all, he is our brother. <laughs> Are you serious, Judah? <laughs> you left the guy for dead. And Judah's left with this tough choice. 
What do I do? Do I kill him and cover it up? Or do I sell him into slavery? Oh, so hard, you know? Judah, was there a third option? Save him from the pit you just threw him in? You got to admire his clout, I guess. He's very pragmatic. I guess, well, it's so difficult to cover up a murder. Why don't we just sell him? Cleans up that. We get some money. And so he does. They sell him. And he asks this question, what will we gain if we kill our brother? And I just want to pause on this question for a second. What will we gain? What would we gain if we kill our brother? Well, I guess we gain the ease of not having to deal with the disposal. We get 20 pieces of silver. I don't know what that could buy you. Some McNuggets or something, something, something good. What would we gain if we kill our brother? Judah. Joseph is one of Jacob's sons. Jacob is blessed by God. He is one of the 12. He could be that royal snake-crushing seed. There is a 1 in 12 chance, or an 8.33 recurring, I couldn't get the dot, sorry, chance, that this guy is going to come and deal with the great problem. Do you see, Judah, the death and decay and disease that runs rampant in the world? Do you see it? He could have been the one. You want to sell him off. And I think this is where we get to see the multiple layers of this story. At one level, it is truly wicked and evil that Joseph's brothers think it's fine to almost kill and sell their brother into slavery. Like that's just one level of the story. At a deeper level, it's even more messed up that he was their brother, right? But at the most fundamental level, it's particularly wicked because they are killing off one of the sons of the covenant, someone who could be the seed. They're working against God's plan of salvation. And so we have this question, Joseph, is he going to be the crushing seed? Well, his brothers decide, yeah, let's sell him into slavery. Could you imagine what it's like? Joseph, he's at the bottom of the pit. It's, I don't know, dark maybe. He sees a rope come down. Oh, goodness, I'm safe. He climbs up. And what meets him when he gets up to the top? Kind brothers? Give me a hug? Reconciling? No. He's sold into slavery. His brothers look him in the eye, their own flesh and blood, made in the image of God, a son of the covenant, a son of blessing, and they sell him into slavery. And after that, Reuben comes back. I don't know where he went. <laughs> Maybe he went to the bathroom just for a really long time. He comes back and somehow the whole trade deal's gone. Possibly the worst trade deal of all time. He goes and comes back and goes, where's the boy? Reuben knows that he's in trouble. He's like that classic older sibling. You know when your younger sibling really screws up but it's going to come back on you? <laughs> you feel like, oh man, how do you pacify the situation? He's distraught. And sin gives way to more sin. They decide to cover it up. They, they, they find an animal. They 
slit its neck, blood flows out, they drench the coat in it, they lie to their dad, Jacob, and tell them, tell him that Joseph had died, and Jacob grieves as if his son had died, because he thinks, truly, his son had died. And here it's important to know that I think in the ancient world, being sold into slavery was pretty much like death. In fact, probably even worse than death. Joseph isn't just really being sold into slavery. It's like he had died. At least if you died, that's the end. But for the slave, could you imagine what it would be like to go live in a land of people who don't speak your language, to be cut off from your family, your ancestral home, the God you worship, living out your days to just amass wealth for someone else with no economic prospects, no marriage prospects, nothing for them in the ancient world would be, would be horrifying. And so the story ends and we're left with Jacob's grief. He grieves for his son. Is Jacob the kingmaker? Is Joseph the snake crushing seed? The story ends with Jacob's grief. Now, throughout the series, we're going to be going through the book of Genesis 37 to 50. Um, I hope to run a small little separate series where we kind of talk about how we read Old Testament narrative to help us understand this passage better. And so we'll call this section Old Testament narrative reading tips. And now to illustrate something, I want to read out some words and I want to see if you guys can parrot to me the finishing of this sentence. This is a first line from a very popular book. Let's see if you can get the end to it. All right. Mr. and Mrs. Dursley of number four, Privet Drive, were proud to say that they were perfectly normal. Thank you very much. much. This is, of course, the first line in Harry Potter and the Philosopher's Stone outside of the Bible outside of the Bible, arguably the most commercially successful book of all time. And um, it tells a story about a guy called Harry. I don't think I'm going to ruin it for you. Um, who overcomes this weird wizard bad guy called Voldemort, right? Now, in chapter one, Voldemort isn't defeated, right? But that doesn't make chapter one pointless. You've got to keep reading for it to make sense. And I think that's how we ought to treat Old Testament narrative. We've got to read it like a narrative. The first chapter of Joseph's story ends this way. But for us to truly understand it, we've got to keep going. The chapters interrelate. They weave together. And so, I think an implication of that is Genesis 37 to 50 is a tightly packed literary unit, kind of like a novel or novella. And one of the best ways that you hear can understand what's going on in this section of the Bible is to read the whole thing in one go. You may do that sequentially at night after night, but to not just read 10 verses, come back next week and expect to understand it. That's not how you treat other narrative, is it? Read it as narrative. Look for the tension lines. If you want to do that um, on your triplet page, I made a PDF for you. It actually just, it strips all the verses away and the headings and it just has the story of Joseph, just like a storybook. And read it and see the great things that God has done. Anyway, so the first tip we're going to try to do is read Old Testament narrative like you read other narrative. Let's now try to apply that to the 
to the passage we've been reading. All right, so this is the text, very tiny. I think the, one of the most important lines is here. Let's blow it up. It is this. After Joseph has his dreams and he tells his parents, it says his brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the matter in mind. When you're reading a story, chapter one of any other story that you'd read, and something like this appears, what do you think? Well, you go, of course, right? But that's an important line. It's not a throwaway line. There's something unresolved. We haven't figured out what's happened to Joseph's dreams. There's a mystery there. And it might foreshadow that something is going to happen. It gives us hope that something is going to happen. And that's exactly what's going on because this story contains in it two competing narratives. The first is the fact that there's the mystery of Joseph's dreams, right? It anticipates his glorious ascension. He's supposed to be the king over this family, which is supposed to be the king of the world. He's supposed to be top dog. But going across that line is family dysfunction, discord amongst brothers, which actually leads to his death, you know, his, his dissension into a pit. Joseph was meant to be elevated to the highest place, but he is thrown down, so far down that he's actually thrown beneath the ground, into the earth. Is Jacob the kingmaker? Is Joseph the snake-crushing seed? Well, maybe, right? Maybe. But right now, all we see in the story is that Jacob's seed, his children, are killing each other off. The sons of the covenant, and this is what we're going to learn today, the sons of the covenant murder their brother, the king. That's kind of what's happened here. I mean, that's one level of the story. But remember, at a deeper level, thinking about the big idea, the big question we're going to be running through is, these people, and this is what's particularly messed up about this chapter, are actually working against God's plan to bring forward a seed who will save the world. Now, you may know the story where this is going to end. But I think it's good to sit with that tension for a little bit. And here, I think, is why I want to encourage you to recognize the creative genius of the Bible. Because this story not just has, doesn't just have these two layers. It's going to have a, a, a crazy third layer. Because as we're trying to answer the question, is Joseph the royal snake crushing seed? The answer is, well, we'll kind of no. Not, not a strong no, but no. It's going to be someone called Jesus. I hope you get to meet him if you haven't. Jesus, he is the one who reverses the curse, who makes all things right, who puts an end to disease and death and decay. But Joseph's story, as we see him, we're going to be seeing beyond him to someone who looms larger. That's Jesus. Joseph's story will help us to understand what Jesus has done Maybe in a, in a new light for you. And what, well, what can we gather? What can we gather? Well, just like Joseph, we see that the insanity of the situation that the sons of the covenant, well, really all people, murder their king. That's insane, isn't it? The one who was supposed to come, like, they should have recognized his glory, and, but they kill him. They kill him. He's betrayed by his own. 
In fact, he's kind of thrown down below the ground into death. But what's amazing about this is that it's God's plan. This is God's plan for the royal snake-crushing seed. And I'm excited to continue reading with you as we go through this narrative to unpack what Jesus has done as we see Joseph's life. We have seen but a shadow of Jesus today, but don't stress, friends, the story has just begun. And with that, we'll end. Thank you for listening to this Monash Christian Union Bible Talk. We long to see everyone at Monash University know a disciple-making disciple of Jesus Christ. If you have been blessed by this ministry and would love to support Monash Christian Union, you can do so via the link in the podcast description.